Hey there, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Dark and Devious. I'm Chris. And I'm Patrick. Come along with us as we discuss tales of murder, mysteries, and devious behaviors. Welcome to our very first episode of Dark and Devious, a podcast where we will be telling you all about some of the most intriguing, horrifying, triggering, and downright suspicious true crime cases. We're talking murders, missing people, and cold cases, cults, and every now and then we'll throw in spooky tales of the paranormal and just straight up weird occurrences. Each week, one of us will dive deep into a case that intrigues us, while the other will sit back, enjoying a tale they already know, or get shocked by a brand new story that is unbelievable. But before we get into our very first dark tale, Chris, why don't we share a little bit about ourselves and how this podcast came to be? All right, so I'll take this opportunity to introduce myself and where I'm coming from for this podcast. I'm your co-host, Chris Unger. Uh, I use he, him pronouns. I grew up just outside the Twin Cities here in Minneapolis and St. Paul, uh, and I have always been attracted to mysteries. In fact, I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day about books that we liked as kids, and I realized they were pretty much all mysteries. I was like, Hardy Boys, Boxcar Children, The Bailey School Kids. And one thing those all had in common was there was always something spooky or unexplained going on, and I apparently could not get enough of it. Um, and then you think about the shows that were on when I was growing up. Uh, Unsolved Mysteries was always the coolest to me. I think because I always hoped I would recognize someone or something from the show. I think we all want to satisfy our inner detective. And then there were so many true crime, like real event things that were going on during my childhood. There was the O.J. Simpson case. There was JonBenet Ramsey. More locally here in Minnesota, there was Jacob Wetterling and the Katie Poyer case. Um, and these were really formative moments of my childhood. Uh, and it all just kind of piques my curiosity. I mean, that, that curiosity just won't quit for me. Uh, I'm also a longtime bookseller. I've been doing that gig for about 13 years. So I've amassed a bit of a book collection, uh, including a lot of true crime stuff. So I might be selecting a few cases based on those books, um, but not exclusively. Uh, as far as what I want to get from doing this podcast, uh, other than getting to hang out with my totally super cool co-host... Um, I really hope to inspire some amateur detectives among us uh, and just overall entertain and inform anybody who wants to listen to the stories we have to tell. I mean, I think it's really important uh, to not forget some of these stories so that history doesn't repeat itself. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. 
for this whole podcast experience. Very cool. Um, thanks for sharing about yourself, Chris. Um, as mentioned, I am Patrick Khan. Also use he, him pronouns. Um, it's very similar to Chris in always growing up having a fascination with true crimes and mysteries and uh, honestly morbid topics. Um, I did not grow up in the Twin Cities. I'm originally from rural Illinois. Um, but, you know, growing up in a rural community doesn't mean that you're not exposed to certain things. Um, I, I credit a lot of my uh, true crime and murder uh, fascination to my mother. Uh, Dateline was a constant in our house. Uh, she was always watching that in the evening and I was right by her side. I remember, you know, as a young child um, at a very young age watching movies that were wildly inappropriate for myself. <laughs> um, I remember going to a church function dressed as the Hookman from Candy I Know Man. What You Did Last oh, Summer. Oh, even better. Yes. Um, so that went over real well, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and then uh, just growing up, I, I, I just feel like I was constantly being pulled into true crime cases. Um, I feel like I, I was exposed to some not so nice people when I was in college and then I found out that they had an even darker backside than I preferred they did. Phrasing there. Yes. Darker backside. Um, <laughs> yeah. And similar to Chris, I, I just, I like to unravel mysteries and I've also always had a fascination with your quote unquote, um, tragic beauties. Um, so good. Yeah. I'm sure we'll discuss a few. Over... We, we definitely will. I'm, I know for sure Marilyn will be in a future episode because yes. that is a rabbit hole that I dive down often. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that this podcast experience for both ourselves and our listeners will not only provide like some dark entertainment, but also, you know, shed some light on some unfortunate events. Awesome. I cannot wait to get into this with you. Um. Do you want to take a break here? Um, also, I just want to say that this podcast came to be because I had a dream that Chris and I hosted a podcast together. And dreams do come true. Sometimes. They do come true, <laughs> and it it just it just led to this this uh, dark experience we're about to share with you. <laughs> To decide who would get to tell their story first and ultimately establish the back and forth of the storyteller that we've set up, we simply flipped a coin. I called heads and heads it was. So Chris, are you ready for the very first story told on Dark and Devious? I am so, so ready. I've been ready. I cannot wait for this story. All right, well... Trigger warning before I get into the story. This does contain uh, sexual assault content as well as um, the victim being a minor. So those of you that don't want to hear that, uh, you might want to turn off now. 
hopefully we'll have plenty more episodes that you'll want to listen to if that is not your your thing. Yes. So, I'm going to be telling you the story of the murder of Jessica Hasek. This is the murder of a young girl who uh, was from my home, sort of my hometown, a very a close town to me. As I mentioned, I'm from rural Illinois. Um, you feel like you have many hometowns when you live in the sticks. Okay, so it took place shortly before I was born, and the year was 1984. Uh, Jessica Hasek was a 15-year-old girl living in Watsika, Illinois. Um, just so you have a little bit of a setting, Watsika is a very small Midwestern town Uh, located in Iroquois County, which is central east Illinois. In 1984, the population was roughly around 5,500 people, and it's basically the same today. Um, In the 1980s, there was some minimal change, such as gas stations and a few fast food restaurants, but it mostly was still a mom-and-pop type of town. Um, It was a very close-knit community Um, And to this day, almost everyone knows everyone else, and you most likely had more than a few relatives either living in Watsika or just a couple miles away in another small town. What's really interesting is that there's also Watsika, Minnesota, too. Watsika? Yeah. This this is Watsika. Oh, there's... there's... Like a white... Like a light bulb. Like a light bulb. Okay. Yes. So... I guess they had they had to change the name so they wouldn't get confused. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I think it might also be a Native American. That would um, make, I could I, be wrong on that. The whole Midwest full of of those kind of yeah. names, like Dakota County. Yeah, um, that's where I'm from. Oh. <laughs> I grew up there. <laughs> okay, so now um, some some bit about Jessica herself. Uh, Jessica Hasek, she, as I mentioned, she was 15 years old. Uh, she and her mom lived in a small apartment, um, and they had a pet cat. I couldn't find a whole ton of information on Jessica, likely due to her being a minor. Um, but what I could find is that she was well-liked, not necessarily, like, super popular head cheerleader, but she had, she had some good friends, and from everything I could gather, she was the the stereotypical all-American girl, um, you know, in the Midwest for what that means. I can't imagine anyone being like, oh yeah, I, that, that girl who died, I didn't like her. Mm. I I feel like it's always someone Mm. who's, who's at least somewhat well-liked. Yep. (laughs) I mean, everyone has someone that likes them, so. I hope so. Yeah. Well, kind of. Some, (laughs) some people I debate whether or not people should like them. Um, so in the, in December of 1985, uh, Jessica's mom was on a trip to Florida, which left, uh, Jessica and her cat home alone. However, uh... Wait, her mom just left her home alone with the cat, like, at 15? That's not... I, I house sat when I was in high school for my parents when they went to Hawaii. All my older siblings were gone. Out, just, out of the house. I was still in high school. I just imagine it's like, okay, there's a bunch of frozen pizzas in the freezer. Like, you'll be fine. Just don't burn the place down. I mean, that's how it is when you grow up in rural communities. I, I suppose, too, that makes sense that you 
don't ever think of something going wrong. Right. Especially nothing well, this extreme. Again, this is a town where everyone knows everybody. Right. And this... your grandma probably lives two blocks away. True. So yeah. like like your grandma, your cousin is down the street. Exactly. Your aunt is two blocks away. Everybody is really tight knit. Yeah. And this is also I feel this comes up a lot in try in true crime that we it's like a community where nobody locks their doors and nothing bad could ever happen here. And then the worst. Yeah. And it's when the worst thing happens, that's when there's a flip. That's when people start locking their doors. That's when they start not leaving their 15 year old home alone while they're in Florida. I just, that's that's mind blowing. All right. (laughs) Yes. I mean, growing up in a community like this, I, I completely understand why her mom left mm-hmm. her by herself. Because she probably trusted her yep. and everybody else in the community. Exactly. Yep. So, I mean, I can't imagine what her mom feels to this day, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Jessica is home alone, but she's not um, spending the night alone. She's staying with her uncle, Mike DeMars. Um, who was a police officer, and also at a friend's house. And the friend's parents were Gordon and Deanna Lustfeld. On the evening of the December 26, 1984, the Lustfelds dropped Jessica off at her apartment to feed the cat and to pick up a few things for herself. Uh, that was around 6.45 p.m. They returned at 9.15 p.m. The apartment was dark, and no one responded when they knocked. Her uncle Mike was notified shortly after by the Lustfelds, and they said, quote, we dropped her off and now we can't find her. So they probably thought at this point that, like, what would a teenage girl be doing? Like, did she sneak out? Or, like, there are so many things that could be going through your head. Did she take the opportunity to go and party while her mom's away? Yeah, I mean, I think a or, lot of teenagers would, even if she is just, like, the good girl, uh, you'd think even the the good kids would want to maybe get out and, you know, maybe take advantage of the situation a little bit. I mean, I think right. we all we all have at least a little bit of that voice yes. in the back of our minds being like, I could do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. I'm home alone. Yep. Yep. Um, so... Uncle Mike and Gordon Lusfelt went back to the apartment while Deanna Lusfelt stayed at their house just in case Jessica showed up there. Um, her uncle stated that when they got to the apartment, there were two men standing on the front porch, but he knew that one was her neighbor and the other one seemed to be friends with him, so he didn't think anything suspicious. Um, keep those guys in mind. Within 24 hours, Jessica was listed as a missing person. Her mom was booking it back home, and there were flyers, posters, and radio ads asking people to keep an eye out for her. So keep in mind this is a small town, a close-knit community, and everyone was determined to find their friend, neighbor, or family member. And that's interesting, too, that we think about how now it 
you get like an amber alert on your phone. So as soon as there's like a missing kid or something, like everybody knows yeah. it. It's funny where I've been like at the grocery store and I feel my phone buzz in my pocket and I'm like, who's calling me? And then I look at it and it's an amber alert. And then you see everybody else's phones going off yeah. and everybody else checking it out or it like sometimes which is a great thing right and to think at this time well for starters cell phones weren't really in wide use much less for for a technology right. like that uh it's amazing how far we came from not that long ago and the, it's just weird to put yourself in the mindset of like you couldn't just tell everyone. Like, maybe you could get on the radio and and say something, but that's only going to reach whoever's happens to be listening yeah. at the same time, or who's in like the range of broadcast. Yeah, because radio stations only go so far. Right. Exactly. And when you've got a missing kid, who knows? They could be if someone picked them up and drove them across state lines or something. The people who would spot them wouldn't even be within range of hearing. Which, mm -hmm. It's just so crazy to to think about how much that's changed and how lucky we are to have the systems in place now. But back then, we didn't have anything like that. Yeah. But that's also amazing that they had within a 24 hours. Because I feel like it used to be... Uh, I think it, it might have been maybe in more in like the 70s, like 70s and earlier... Where a kid had to be missing for a really long time because yeah. apparently kids just would run away or something, mm -hmm. and and they would the, they wouldn't take it that seriously. Well, they, and I mean, in the seventies, a lot of like missing teenagers were just assumed to be like hippie free child children right? that were Which making is, their way uh, out west. But I can't believe that the policy was back then before seemed to be oh, let's not overreact, where it's like, wouldn't it be better to overreact first and then have it not be a big deal rather than to just right. assume that they're fine somewhere, that they yep. just ran away? You can always apologize later. Exactly. Like, let's... Yeah, overreact. Overreact. When you make a mistake, you can say sorry. Yeah. Rather than, I feel like time and time again, people under... like police underreact and and i feel like today it's a lot different but i feel like in 80s and before that was like a big that was just how they handled missing kids mm -hmm. all the time yeah um well jessica's case was not like that i think Thank largely goodness. because it was a small community mm -hmm. um but as the search continued on december 31st 1984 the body of Jessica Hasek was found in front of a tree in a wooded area near Gilman, Illinois, which that is where I went to high school. And how how far away is that? Um, it's about like fifteen miles. I'd I'd say. I mean, there's like another town in between that will slow you down. So like twenty miles maximum. Okay. So only like if you time wise, would it, it take you like what? 20 minutes to drive there. Oh, 15. 15, okay. Yeah. Especially if you're driving on those country roads. Yep. <laughs> I mean, if you were me in high school, you're there in 10. <laughs> um, so, so Jessica was found there. Um, she was wearing no clothing other than shoes and socks. 
um, and she had been shot several times. So during the autopsy, medical examiners found that Jessica had been sexually assaulted, um, sodomized included, and had been shot a total of four times. After further examination, it was found that she did not die from the bullet wounds, but actually passed away from bleeding out and exposure to the elements. Remember, that it was crazy. it was December and she was naked in the woods. Oh my god! Now, but was and with a loss of blood, you're gonna get colder faster. Way faster. And are how what are winters like there? Are they? pretty cold it's cold uh i mean especially this is end of december right yep it's end of december i mean it definitely was i can guarantee you growing up there uh it was below 30 so you were sure you were at least there's a freezing there's a high chance there's snow on the ground if there's not snow on the ground everything is wet oh yeah so wet cold yep snowy yeah Oh, I, I just can't believe that that level of cruelty of, like, even the bullet wounds were not the things that killed yeah. people. Like, she suffered if I, in if, more than one way, clearly. Yeah. Um, I feel like whoever is responsible for this is an absolute monster. I mean, obviously, mm. yep. but that's, like, uh, the highest level of monster. Yeah. Um, so furthering examining of her body found semen and body hairs from her attacker, which would later become key for conviction. As the family was dealing with the grief and outrage of Jessica's murder, her uncle Mike remembered the men that were standing at the front porch next door to her apartment and suggested that the police speak with them to see if they knew, um, any information that may lead to the killer. So the police brought in 18-year-old James Treese for questioning. Treese lived in the apartment directly next to Jessica's, um, and he had previous minor run-ins with the law. He told the investigators that he was ill on the night that Jessica was murdered, and that his friend, William Braid, had come over to keep him company. He also told them that they stepped out in the evening uh, to grab a pizza, and then they were returning to the apartment when Mike had spotted them. Oh, you know, I always, I always feel like I need company when I'm feeling sick. Be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not feeling well. Come on over. Like, and I feel like when I'm, I like maybe he has the flu. I feel like the first thing I want is pizza. <laughs> that just sounds perfect to me. Um. So the police then called in. Uh, his friend, William Braid, who was 25, which is older than 18. I would question that relationship, but a I, I weird, get it. I, guess. I mean, I guess in a small town, your friend pool isn't huge, maybe? I, I guess. Um, but when questioning him, his line events didn't really add up with uh, Teresa's. His story was a bit inconsistent, and investigators uh, asked if he'd be willing to submit a DNA sample. Always a good sign. That just uh, <laughs> and so when the police ask for a <laughs> DNA sample, you know you're you know you're maybe a person of interest. Yeah, it's not looking great. Yes, but you know if you're confident that you didn't do anything, 
be like, okay, yeah. submit it. Well, he submitted it yeah. because he was confident. And when looking at the DNA compared to the semen on Jessica's body and the hair follicles as well, um, it was a match. Go figure. Oh, that's a little suspicious, you might say. Just a bit. And after much pressure in the interrogation room, uh, Braid cracked. So, following Braid's confession, which I will tell you in just a moment, uh, both he and James Treese were apprehended and the investigation took off. So, as mentioned, Jessica had been shot several times. Um, an evidence technician removed one bullet from Jessica's body, as well as three from the tree that she was found in front of. The bullets were found to match a 35 Smith & Wesson handgun belonging to James Treese's father and found within his apartment. Also, a little suspicious. Just a bit. Just a tad. So, the weapon was taken into evidence. A forensic scientist also found that hair consistent with Treese's was found on Jessica's shirt and underwear, and hair consistent with Jessica's was found on his clothing, as well as a bedsheet, blanket, and pillow from his apartment. Fibers found on Jessica's socks were consistent with those of a blanket found in Treese's bedroom. Treese's DNA, which was also taken, was found to be a direct match to other sample semen found on Jessica's body. And in a recorded interrogation, which was later played at the trial, Braid recounted the following events for December 26, 1984. According to Braid, and this is a fact, Teresa's father was a trucker and was out of town on a haul from the morning of December 26, 1984, and did not return until December 28th. On the night of Jessica's murder, Braid and Treese were hanging out at Treese's apartment adjacent to Jessica's. Treese told him he was going to go over to the apartment next door and asked the girl to come over, have a few drinks, and have sex with her. He stated that the defendant later got out a handgun, put it inside his coat, and said instead he would just ask to use her telephone. Braid came back alone and said that she did not have one, which I assume maybe she was being defensive. She didn't want to let an older male into her house. Yeah, I would say I, I think if I was a teenage girl staying, a home, staying home alone by myself, that maybe letting the creepy neighbor boy who's like kind of a... You know, maybe giving me weird vibes. Right. Maybe I wouldn't let him into my apartment. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's just so skeezy. Yes. Um, so when he came back, when she said she didn't have a phone, uh, Therese was aggravated and said he's going to go over there a second time for a cup of sugar. Oh, God. <laughs> If the first one didn't work, what makes you think? Right. I, I imagine he probably didn't look like the baking type. No, probably not. Um, I I have a recent mugshot of him, like his present day, and he's not attractive now, so I'm just assuming he wasn't attractive then. Um, so this time when he came back to his own apartment, he had Jessica with her, with the gun pointed at her back. 
Both men ordered Jessica into the bedroom, and Therese told her to take her clothes off. She was then tied to the bed with multiple pairs of Therese's socks, and Braid attempted to have sex with her. However, which have sex with her, I want to state that he was going to assault her. Uh, that was not complicit. Right. I, it's like, have sex kind of implies that you're both part willing yep. participants. He was, it's an assault when one person doesn't want yeah. it. Yep. Um, but he could not because he could not like form an erection. So despite not having an erection, he was able to masturbate. That is I find I, that so weird. Yeah. It's like you went through this whole like to do of you you've already kidnapped this girl and now that you're actually getting down to the business. I wonder if it's maybe their body telling them what they were doing is wrong. Mm-hmm. I like you. It's like you've got to know at the core of your being that what you're doing is downright evil. Either that, or I could not find um, any information on if they had any substances in them. That but I do be. know that, or if they've been drinking. Yeah, maybe? like like drugs and alcohol will um, stop men from getting an erection. So, and this just seems, this case just seems like they just kind of snapped and did it, which makes me want to believe that they were drunk or under the influence of something. Yeah. As rational people, you you, you want to believe that this is not a rational person's thought. Right. That you kind of want to believe that it's, that you could blame a substance or something right. like that for their actions. Sometimes people are just downright have that evil inside yeah, them, um, or they've got their own like background of you know, maybe they had uh, been abused, and then that just yeah. creates a whole new cycle. So, a lot of abusers are previously abused. Yep, it's that vicious cycle that <sighs> I'm sure we'll hear lots of stories of that coming up again and again. Yeah. Um. So. As I said, he was able to masturbate, and he ejaculated into her mouth, which is just a slap in the face for her. I mean, it's so. After that, he left the room, leaving Treese alone with her. Um, he later re braid later re-entered the bedroom, and Treese was getting dressed. So clearly, Treese assaulted her, and. They cut the socks, try, tying her to the bed. Therese then told her to get dressed and that they were going for a ride. Oh. They left in Braid's truck with Braid driving, Jessica in the middle, and Treats on the passenger side with a gun at her waist. As they left Watsika, Treese demanded that Jessica give any money that she had on her to Braid, which she complied. So... To even add more insult to injury, they took her money too. Yeah, it's like you're fifteen. How much? She's fifteen years old in the eighties. She probably had like five dollars. Yeah, her. maybe, and that would have been generous if mm. they if I could just see like, oh, here's money if you need groceries or something like. Mm-hmm. And in the eighties, you could you could probably buy a whole 
bag full of groceries for five dollars. <laughs> Maybe not a bag, but you can definitely get you know. You can get the basics. Yes. Um. So Braid said that trees told him to turn off Route Twenty Four, which that's the one that would lead you to Gilman, at a sign that said camping. He drove down the road ten to fifteen minutes when they stopped at a wooded area. Still pointing the gun at Jessica, um, Therese ordered her out of the truck. He told her to remove her pants and underwear. She again complied, um, but she put her shoes back on and socks. Um, Braid then sodomized Jessica, so he's the one that could not get an erection earlier, Mm -hmm. but now he's able to because he sodomized her. And when he was finished, Treats ordered her to take off the rest of her clothing and to walk towards a tree. Jessica was then ordered to stand with her back against the tree. And while holding a lantern from his truck shining towards the tree, Treats shot her in the left shoulder. Braid says she fell down to a kneeling position and then Treats fired several more shots um, at her. The two men left in the truck, and went to grab a pizza at Monocle's Pizza in Watsika. That is, that is the, like, the absolute, did they think this was going to be an alibi, or? I believe so, because it would show reason why they left the apartment. Um, I mean, and it goes along with their first kind of lame story, be like, oh, we were just getting a pizza. Yep. Um, so also I just want to mention that I've been in this Monocle's Pizza and it, it just disturbs me knowing that I very well sat in the same booth that these monsters sat in as they ate their pizza. Which it, it, it's so scary to think, think of like all of the restaurants you've ever been to and think if there, there may be a chance that a murderer or a serial killer or something has eaten in that same spot that you sat. Or just people that you pass on the street. Yeah. I think about that all the time. How many people do we walk past that have killed somebody? (laughs) I'm constantly thinking about that. You are, you, I don't know if, um, maybe there's someone you should talk to about that. (laughs) That paranoia of... The possibility that I mean, anybody walking by could be a killer. This is a small town, Watsika. <laughs> it's her next door neighbor. She never thought this would happen by her neighbor. And I live in an apartment building, and there are. It's a big building. There's maybe fifty apartments in this building. I wonder how many killers live here right now. That we. The, where there could be one on the other side of this wall at this moment. Although my neighbor is actually very nice. <laughs> he's a he's a very sweet man that I see coming and going all the time. So I am fairly sure. I'm glad that you trust people more than I do. <laughs> um, so as mentioned, um, when they left the woods, they believed that Jessica was dead. But sadly, um, she lay there suffering for who knows how long. Okay, so it was a pretty quick um, um, open and shut case. I was going to say, that if, if you're a prosecutor, you've got 
they so have, many things going for you. They have DNA linked to both men. They have the weapon matching the bullets. They have a recorded confession. They have employees from the Monocle's Pizza that said that they were there at the time. It's like, and they, they smelled faintly of gunpowder. Right. And they had blood spatters on them. Yep. And they had her hair in his apartment. I mean, it's... Especially when there's no other reason that she would have ever been in his apartment for any other reason. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. they have, like, I think I mentioned they have, like, carpet fibers from his apartment on her socks. You know, this is one of those things where I'm like, I'm so glad that forensics had progressed further by the time this happened. Because if this had happened, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I looked it up, um... Because I, di- I did not believe that DNA was a thing in 1984. Um, but I looked it up and it came about like 1982. Oh, wow. So this is something relatively new that they were using in cases. Yes, it was very new. And uh, it just makes me think of all of those cold cases out there where there might be a semen sample or a hair sample or something that was left at the scene and you could probably trace that now but a lot of times some of that stuff degrades over time and you just imagine how many people have gotten away with Mm -hmm. these types of crimes i know uh all because the technology hadn't gotten there yet Um, although i i feel like these guys really did not do a very good job of trying to cover their tracks no it's they were Especially, like, if if you've played the game Clue, you know the weapon is one of the key things. And, you know, if you were in, you have the revolver... But then again, and... it, was, it was his dad's gun. Like, what's he going to do? Throw it away? And then his dad's going to come home and say, like, where's my gun? Yeah, that... You know what? Maybe don't commit crimes with other people's property where they might miss that item. Or just don't commit crimes. Yeah, that's a really good place to start. If you want to speed, sure. Just speed safely. Speed, speed safely. Like, Only on country roads. Yes. Wear your seatbelt. Yeah. But that's that's it. Speed to crime. Um, so during Teresa's file, which took place in 1985, so it was pretty swift, um, Therese claimed that he was in fact ill on December uh, 26th of 1984. Um, he said that he was in his apartment sick and vomiting, that Braid came over around 5 o'clock um, just, you know, to hang out for, like, you know. Because there's nothing I want more than than to hang out with my friend who has just been it, vomiting it, profusely. Right. He said that he was there uh, for, like, support, you know, like. <laughs> He's vomiting, not having a baby. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> but then he, he did say that he... Um, the two of them, that Braid left Teresa's apartment at some point in the evening and came back later. And then after Braid had gotten back, that's when they went to Monocle's to get a pizza. I just feel like after you've been vomiting, pizza is not, I don't think your stomach should be handling pizza no. right after you are vomiting. No. That's, you need some water. Some water, maybe some chicken soup. Maybe not even chicken. Maybe just broth. Let's start there. Good idea. And it's got vitamins and it's nutrition. Yeah. And it's uh, hydrating. Yeah. Don't don't 
don't go diving into solids. No. That's a terrible idea. Um, so, Braid claims that a few days later, no, I'm sorry, Therese claims that a few days later that Braid told him that he had taken the gun from Therese's apartment, got the girl next door, took her to a field, had sex with her, and then shot her. He told Therese that if he were to tell anyone, that he would kill him too. Oh, the old, oh, if he'd kill me first if I ever told. Here, let's move, let's move your computer over there. Perfect. Um, he denied any involvement. However, with the recorded confession of Brayden, uh, the great amount of physical evidence linking Tons trees to the crime, evidence. The, jury, the jury saw right through him. The jury found Treese guilty of... Uh, so the jury found Treese guilty of all charges. He was sentenced to life in prison for murder and 60 years imprim- imprisonment for armed robbery, aggravated criminal sexual assault, and home invasion, plus two concurrent sentences of 30 years for aggravated kidnapping. So he's never going to get out of there. Yeah. He has no no parole options. He has uh, applied for appeals multiple times, even not that long ago. I believe the last one I saw was 2013. That is crazy. Yes. And he's been denied every request, thankfully. He is currently residing at Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill, Illinois where I hope he just rots away for the rest of his life. Right. That seems like a fitting end for this this person. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine them ever letting this guy out of jail. Right. Like, it... I'm, but I'm surprised all the time when I hear about other people that are let out. Yeah. It's just our justice system is... It's, yeah, it's which, a little will, it's wonky. Yeah, which leads right into what happened to William Braid. Oh boy. So William Braid, um, he was technically an accomplice. Uh, he did sexually assault her, but he's not the one that pulled the trigger. Details, details. Yes. Um, so he received a lesser sentence uh, due to that, and also because he was very cooperative with the police. I guess. He was sentenced to just 50 years in prison for charges of brutal rape and accomplice to murder. However, in October of 2013, he was released from prison on good behavior. He served only half of his sentence. So... I suppose that was quite a long time. 25 years is a long time for... I mean, he sodomized her. He assaulted her, mm-hmm. which that's a lot more time than a lot of sexual assault mm-hmm. um, people. I mean, I really feel like you deserve to when you do. He something, deserved the fifty. Yeah, when you when you do uh, when you are part of a crime that's that cruel, I I feel like you deserve to serve out your full sentence. I don't know how any amount of good behavior. Right. Like Somehow, you mopped the floor as well. Good yeah, job. I I don't. I guess that's one of those things where I don't really understand because sometimes you hear about 
people who are kind of over sentenced for things yeah. and then they get off, then they get released early for good behavior. And I feel like, okay, I get that. It just seems like it's very relative and there's always going to be instances of some people not getting enough time, other people getting way over sentenced yes. for the level of the crime. And it's, it's messed up. Yeah. I mean, to, so how, so this guy was, he was the 25 year old, yep. right? Yep. And then he served 25 years. Yep. So he was 50. So he's, so now he's. Now he's in 2013. Okay. So now he is. 57. Basic math. 60, 58. Okay. And you know what? I feel like if you are at a point where like maybe you're a little less spry, be like, okay. I is like as long as you can't catch anybody anymore. Like true, but just yesterday, which I may cover this in the future, um, I listened to the oldest serial killer in the United States history who was in his seventies. Oh dear God! Oh, so, uh, oh, that is very interesting. I feel like, yeah, I feel like if you are older, you get a new kind of edge of of. <laughs> where maybe you're not as strong and spry as you were when you were younger. Uh, but now everyone thinks of you as not a threat because of your age. Yeah. So you might be able to use that to your advantage. And mm -hmm. that just shows those gears that the gears in the mind that are turning to make somebody a, that are part of a killer's brain I guess it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, as long as those gears are turning, there's gonna where there's a will, there's a way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um. So he was released, and he is out, just living his life. Um. And when he was released, Jessica's uncle Mike, who was the police officer, which I can't imagine what it was like being a police officer. Ooh, yeah. And your niece is missing. Oh, and the Gordons, um, the the husband, he was a lawyer at the time. Oh, wow. So can you imagine being a lawyer and a cop in charge of a 15-year-old girl and this happens? I, I can only imagine you would feel so helpless that you're like, I am the, I am supposed to be the the law like i'm supposed to be a protector exactly. and i couldn't protect this family member and mm -hmm. that would that would be devastating i don't know how yeah i could imagine it just be really hard to go on mm -hmm. especially in a career of law enforcement right uh, i mean do you have any information on on like he did he remain a uh, police officer? He did. Okay, he did. And the lawyer, um, Gordon Lustfeld, he actually he went up in status. Like he kept climbing like the legal ladder. Okay. Um. So they they did stay in law enforcement. Okay. Um. But when uh Braden was released, just because Uncle Mike stated, "You just feel helpless. You feel like the justice system has let you down. The victim doesn't get justice." It doesn't matter what kind of case it is. You feel violated forever. William Braid should not be let out because my niece is never coming back. God. 
and just let that sink in mm-hmm. and I'm I would feel the exact same way. Yeah. I feel like I mean it's so unfair when somebody that like there is a family that is broken forever. Like there is this hole left in a family that is never gonna be filled again. Right. And the fact that after you serve your sentence and you get released back into society, you can you can kind of just live your life again. Right. And that I I don't think I mean, I guess I've heard of instances where people have gotten out of prison and then gone on to devote their lives to worthy causes or to be advocates of some sort, but if you just get to go and live a normal life, which, I mean, you've got a this horrible criminal record that will right. haunt you forever, I can't imagine how difficult that would be to get a job and stuff like that, but, um, but you get to do something that your victim never will get to do ever again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that feels really unfair. Um, so I, I totally feel for that uncle of, of hers. I would, I would feel the exact same way. Yeah. I can't imagine what it's like to go through that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the tale. Yeah. That's the awful heartbreaking story oh. of Jessica Hasek. That is that was a great first intro. I, it has a personal touch to it. It's, it's really fascinating that it's from your hometown, especially in like such a small tight knit community. Mm-hmm. I think those are super fascinating because I, I feel like those are the, the kinds of cases where everybody talks oh, and, gosh. and the, the kind of the theories that come yeah. out. I mean, this was a pretty straightforward case. Yeah. Um, I mean, you want to talk about, I, I don't have many more murders from my hometown. There is like a couple that killed each other. Ooh. Yeah. We could do a whole series uh, of just rural, your rural <laughs> Illinois and murders. Yep, and there's like, there's, there's a case of sex trafficking from my hometown. There's a plethora of drugs, That's... crimes. Small towns are not like Norman Rockwell. Right. And I think, are, I think that's they are so dark. fascinating. They have secrets and everyone knows everyone's secrets, but no one talks about it. Would you say that these small towns are dark and devious? Pockets. Pockets. Yes. Are, okay, we're not going to blanket not, just call not every the, small town. Not the town. whole town. <laughs> but you definitely have your, your dark and devious folks. Which is perfect. I think I think we are on the right track with this podcast. <laughs> and that's exactly the kind of stories we want uh, to shed some light so they don't stay in the dark. Yeah. But, All right. All right. So, well, Thank you so much for sharing that story with me and with all of our listeners. Of course. Thank you, everyone who listened. Um, If you like what you heard, keep coming back for future episodes. 
And until then, we'll... We're, we're still thinking of a tagline. Yeah, we don't have a tagline We'll yet. get one eventually. We'll get there. Um, I guess if anybody has any ideas for a good tagline and want to share yes. with us, feel free to email us at darkanddeviouspodcast at gmail.com. As well as if you want to share any feedback, I think it'd be really interesting yeah. to hear some uh, feedback, especially we're just getting started here. Um, or if you have ideas for cases, I don't know. I, it'd be just really cool to see who's listening to, hear to from us. from you. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually we'll get an Instagram and... And a Twitter. We'll, we'll get on all the social media stuff. We'll just kind of see we'll how get it goes. There. We're a baby. We're just We're a growing. Baby. We're just a baby podcast. Yeah. So, uh, thank you again for listening and we will see you on our next episode. Bye. Bye. That could be our sign up. Just us saying bye and unison. Should be. Bye. Bye.